Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and Lord, that's exactly what we want, that the glory of your name would be our passion, both as a church and as individual members of the church, that we would all be inflamed with this zeal for your name, that we would make much of Christ in our lives and in this church, that he would be the core, the center, the the cornerstone of it all. Lord, I pray that you would open your word to us now. It's perfect. It's pure. And I pray, Lord, that it would enlighten our eyes this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into the passage, this week, late this week, there was a uh, judgment from the Supreme Court of the United States. I, I felt it necessary to just address this and give you a biblical Christian perspective of the times that we live in. Uh, from time to time, we've done this in the past year especially. Uh, I by no means claim to be a professional at these kinds of things. But as I see other pastors, other men uh, shepherd their flock, I am encouraged to make sure that you, dear saints, that I entrust to you what God says about what we see in the headlines. But uh, the Supreme Court of the United States passed a, or ruled on a case this week, six to three, in favor of allowing churches in California uh, to meet indoors. Now, you might have said, we've been meeting indoors. Well, yes, but praise the Lord, we're not, it seems like we won't be breaking the law for a while. Uh, I want you to, I want to be clear that this is uh, the ruling of men, right? Uh, this I want, to, I want to read to you some of the words that they say to, to let you understand uh, what we as Americans are entitled to, uh, what your Supreme Court has ruled, especially in, the, in favor of the church, of the freedom of religion. Uh, the statement about this judgment says this. I'll read a few excerpts from it. Since the arrival of COVID-19, California has openly imposed more stringent regulations on religious institutions than on, any, than on many businesses. When a state so obviously targets religion for differential treatment, our job becomes much clearer. Regulations like these violate the First Amendment. Now, reminder, this is... The highest court in the land, this isn't some crazy person with a blog website. Of course, we are not scientists, it goes on to say, but neither may we abandon the field when government officials with experts in tow seek to infringe a constitutionally protected liberty. The state presumes that worship inherently involves a large number of people. But never mind that scores might pack into train stations or wait in long 
checkout lines in the businesses the state allows to remain open. California worries that worship brings people together for too much time. Yet, California does not limit its citizens from lingering in shopping malls, salons, or bus terminals. Edicts like California's violate the Constitution. Government actors have been moving the goalposts in California on pandemic-related sacrifices for months, adopting new benchmarks that always seem to put restoration of liberty just around the corner. As this crisis enters its second year, it is too late for the state to defend extreme measures such as these. Again, these are well-educated men and women evaluating how our local governments have handled this. And I want to remind you, though, that this ruling doesn't inherently give you freedom of worship. That rulings like this, or of any court, do not grant you the right to worship. Rather, your right to worship, your obligation to worship, in fact, comes from God himself, not from rulings like this, not from laws. The Constitution does not give us the right to worship God. It protects our right to worship God. And Romans 13.4 tells us that government's role is to be a minister of God, to reward good, punish evil. It says that government is a minister of God. That's diakonos, where we get the word deacon. It's servant. So government is to carry out the word of God in the most perfect sense. In its most perfect form, rather, government carries out and protects what God calls his people to do. We need to be aware that as a church, we answer to God alone. We answer to Jesus Christ alone. And I thank you, brothers and sisters, for your support. The elders, thank you for your support this past year as we've tried to navigate through this. Because in the same passage in Romans 13, it says to owe your neighbor nothing but love. And so we've taken great pains to balance our right, given by God himself, not by government, to worship him to obey him in the gathering of saints, but yet at the same time to carry out the mandate in Romans 13 to love our neighbor and to care and protect our neighbor from harm. That's a biblical perspective of what you might be seeing in the headlines. Now, opinions will be all over the place, but God's word is sure. And so we always go to the Word of God for direction in these kinds of things. When things are hazy and cloudy, we go to the Word of God for clarity, not for more confusion. 
So I want you to be encouraged, church, that the Supreme, your Supreme Court has finally sided with God and is allowing us to freely meet. But even if we had to meet in caves and catacombs and underground cellars, if it ever comes to that, that's what we would do, right? If this world were to hate Christ to the point where all liberties are stripped away, what would we do? We would still be the church because we answer to Christ. We need to keep on praying that the Lord would lift this trial of COVID-19 from us so that we might be able to fellowship, worship, and be the church, be Christians with more and more freedom and, limit, and with less and less limitations. But yet, at the same time, we should seek to love each other and prefer one another and to honor each other, if, even if our differences, even if, we, even if we have differences when it comes to things like masks, staying at home, social distancing, these kinds of things. We're still the church, and so we still need to be united. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to seek unity above all else, to seek to love one another in and through these circumstances, because it's not just going to magically go away. So we have quite the road ahead of us this year, and who knows what this year has for us. But we know that we're going to continue to be the church, and you're going to continue to be Christians, God's ambassadors for Christ in this world. All right, that's enough of that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians 2. Brother Sam read a larger section of Scripture, and we're just going to be looking at the last four verses of the passage that he read this morning. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The title of this sermon is God's Household. God's Household. And I desire this morning, church, that you would grow in your appreciation and in your commitment to the church. We have something special here at Redeemer Bible Church. Here we exist to exalt Christ by making disciples in this neighborhood, this city, and this world. And we 
to, to achieve that goal, we desire to be marked by seven things in order to be a, a Christ-exalting church. We want to be marked by Christ-centeredness, discipleship culture, leadership development, family-based ministry, body life, community outreach, and worldwide missions. We've looked at the first three in the past month, and this morning we're going to be combining family-based ministry and body life, giving an emphasis to body life. But in, in regards to <clears throat> excuse me, in regards to family-based ministry, we believe that we must raise up children who worship and obey Christ. Therefore, we will provide Christ-centered teaching and discipleship to our children. We will prioritize spiritual investment through teaching, songs, prayer, and individual communication. We will partner with and encourage fathers and mothers to lead their children in the home with the goal that our children would be part of the family of God. And at the same time, we desire to be marked by this body life that we see in the New Testament. We believe that we must be a church dominated by the love and selflessness of Christ. So therefore, we will be a collection of saints who are committed to obeying Christ. We will strive for every member to be used in the kingdom through service to one another. We will be marked by hospitality towards all people groups who walk through our doors. And we will be a family that prays and cares for one another, both spiritually and and physically. What do you find in the context of a strong family? What good things are in a strong family unit? A place of belonging, right? A home. Stability and, and security are the blessings of a strong family. A place where, you can, where a child can grow up. A place where your needs are cared for. A strong family offers a place where you just enjoy being in the presence of siblings and parents and children. There's much good to be had in a strong biblical family unit. This is a picture of what we have in the family of God. Paul in Ephesians 2 calls this the household of God. In Timothy, 1 Timothy, the letter that he wrote, he calls it the household of God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we are. We're God's household. We are family. And so therefore, in this family, in Redeemer Bible Church, you can find your home here. You can find stability here. You can find growth here. And yes, even you can find the presence of God here. Now you might be wondering why we're kind of skipping one of our marks as family-based ministry and why are we going on to the body life as a mark of this church. 
Well, it comes from this in Matthew 12, where Jesus Christ says something that's striking to us, still striking today. Matthew 12, 46 through 50 says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You might be blessed by a strong family. You might receive the kinds of blessings that God intends for you to have in strong family ties that are based in devotion and love and loyalty. Yet, Christ tells us that for him, his primary family is the church of God. His primary family is God's family. It is our desire that our biological, our physical family would also be part of our spiritual family. Sometimes that's not the case. Jesus Christ gives us the model of loyalty, devotion, and attention. He says, this is my family. So church, dear saint, as you look around in front and to the side and behind you this morning, this is your family. And so if this is your family, you can find your home here. You can find stability and growth and even the presence of God here in this family. This morning, we're just going to be looking at the first two points, that you can find your home here and stability here. With what I already had to say this, this morning about the judgment of the Supreme Court and with the fact that we're taking the Lord's Supper, I want us to not be rushed as we look at these things. Verse 19 in Ephesians 2 begins, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and are of God's household. Much like I asked what's so good about a family, what's so good about being part of a, part of a nation? Why do people flock to nations to become citizens of that nation? What's so good about being a citizen? Well, if you think about it, the difficulties of that stranger life go away. The difficulties of having a home in a place that is not your home drift away when one becomes a citizen. And 
also all the benefits, all the blessings of citizenship are available to you. All the rights and the privileges that come with being a citizen of a specific nation come to you if you become a citizen. All the freedoms are yours. All the privileges are yours. A place of belonging. Or think of it this way. What makes it so difficult for someone to move away from family? Have you done that? I've done that. It's difficult. It's tough. If you grew up in a certain location, a certain city, or even a certain region, and then for whatever reason, you have to move to a different location, that step is very difficult. Why is it? Well, it's because when you move away from family like that, you get this sense, you get this feeling like you're on your own, don't you? You get this feeling like nobody else close by is there to help and to step in quickly when needs arise. That safety net that is the family unit is not so close anymore. If you lose your job or if a difficult circumstance arises, the help and the comfort, the availability of family is just a little bit more difficult to enjoy. In Ephesians 2, rather in the whole letter of Ephesians, Paul is writing to a mixed church. He's writing to a mixed church, a church that has both ethnic Gentiles and ethnic Jews. These Gentiles were on the outside of the covenant. Look back with me at verse 11 and 12. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles of the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's writing to Gentiles and reminding them that for thousands and thousands of years, they and their ancestors did not have this kind of covenant relationship with God that the Israelites enjoyed. They were on the outside. The Gentiles were on the outside of the covenant, the agreement, the contract, the, the loyal guarantee of God to his people. Even though these Gentiles were living in, in a land that was their own, when it came to spiritual matters in their relationship with God, they were strangers and aliens. They were foreigners, it says. That is, they were sojourners. This word for, for foreigner...
or strangers in verse 12. This word means those who dwell beside. So it's somebody who is living in a specific nation, a specific land, but they're not really part of it. They're dwelling alongside those whose land it really is. They're not those who dwell in the land. They kind of dwell aside those who dwell in the land. It's not their place. This is the relationship of all Gentiles to God. That we live in God's world, but we're on the outside. This is how it's been for thousands of years. In the Old Testament, the Gentiles were those who dwelt beside the Israelites, who were just on the fringes of the relationship with God. But this all changed in the New Covenant. Look at verse 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says, but now. He's introducing a new era in history. This is a new time for the world. And in this new era of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. There is now no division between Israel and all other nations. Because now in Christ, we faraway Gentiles are brought near. And this is all accomplished by the blood of Christ. How did it do this? His sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, removed the wall that was between Jew and Gentile, it says. Verse 14, He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. In the Old Testament, there was a dividing wall between God's, the access that God's people had to God and the access that the Gentiles had to God. There was a difference. Israelites, the Jews, had special access to God. The Gentiles grew up not having that kind of access to God. And so therefore, not only were both excluded out from the presence of God, and there was a division between Jew and Gentile away from God, but there was a division between the Jew and the Gentile themselves. There was a difference between the two. Yet, verse 14, that wall was broken down. That barrier, that dividing wall was broken down. And so now... There is no difference between the kind of access that a Jew or Israelite can have to God and the kind of access that the Gentile can have to God. 
And as a result of that, there is now no, there is no separation between ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. See, in the, in the blood of Christ, there is true equality. You see, the, the, the difference, though, between biblical understanding of equality and the world's understanding of equality is that the Bible tells us that we are all equally sinners. We are all equally wretched, depraved, dead in our trespasses and sins. He said that actually earlier on in chapter 2 of Ephesians, didn't he? But in Christ, this not only did the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile get broken down, but the dividing wall between all mankind and God himself was broken down. Look what he says. Again, 14. He made both groups into one, one mass of sinful humanity. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. How? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is a law of commandments contained in ordinances, verse 15, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He's talking about between the Jew and the Gentile. There is now peace between different ethnicities. How? He reconciled them both, verse 16, in one body to God through the cross. That's how. He was the sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. He was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Not of the Jews only. Not of one race or ethnicity only. But of the world. The sacrifice of Christ removed the wall between Jew and Gentile because it removed the wall between all mankind and God. We were reconciled to God. Reunited in peace. Look what he says. Verse 16. Reconcile them both. Reconcile all humanity in one reconciled body to God through the cross. How? By, by it having put to death the enmity. The cross put the enmity between all of us and God himself to death. Notice in verse 14 also, I love this, for he himself is our peace. Jesus Christ himself is our peace, Christian. You have difficulty getting along with somebody? Christ is your peace. Go back to Christ. Go back to the cross and remember who you are at the foot of the cross. Remember who they are at the foot of the cross and you'll, and you'll quickly 
realize both of you are in the need of grace. Both of you are in need of forgiveness. He is our peace, both with each other and with God. Not only did he purchase our peace, not only does he grant us his peace, he himself is our peace. He is. Christ, purchase your adoption into this family of God. He purchased your right of citizenship into God's kingdom on the cross. And so now we all have a home. Notice verse 19. So then you are no longer, because of the gospel, you are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. All of us are the family of God. And this is accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Sinner, friend, if you have not confessed your sin, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation from the wrath that is to come for your sin, I beseech you, do it today. Trust in Christ. Because if you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, if you have not trusted Him for your access to God alone, then you're still on the outside. And though you may be attending a church, you're not part of the family of God. Though you are here, you are on the outside. Though you dwell within these walls, you are still outside of the covenant of God. Outside of the family. But now in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all who are who are on the outside are now co-citizens with the holy ones, with the saints. And there is now one, one household. There is one family of God. I love this. In verse 19, he doesn't say any kind of language of, uh, no kind of designation of of a stepchild or adopted or half-child or anything like that. There's no qualifications. We are all of God's household. We are all children of God, sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. We are all equally members of the one family of God in Christ. Co-equal, co-heirs, brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so find your home here. Let this be your home. If you're not a member, become a member. Love your fellow Christian no matter how different they are from you. Appreciate the treasure that is the local church and renew your commitment 
to the saints of your church. Find a home here, Christian. Not only can you find a home in the family of God, but you can find stability here as well. This is wonderful. Verse 20. Having been built, this household is one that has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, this household, this, this family, this, this structure that is the family of God, the household of God, it is built on top of a foundation. And this foundation was laid by the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets, their main function was to speak the words of God. They revealed God's hidden truth to mankind. Chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 says, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight, Paul says, into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. There have been things for ages that have been hidden from mankind. A mystery. But Paul says now that all the lights are on and we can see clearly what has been there the whole time. We can see clearly who the Messiah is, who Jesus Christ is, and why he came. We can see clearly how a man and a woman can be justified to God. We see clearly how we can be right with the Almighty Creator. That has been made crystal clear. And the apostles and the prophets reveal God's hidden truth to mankind. That's what they do. That's their function. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Paul says, speaking of his teaching and his writings, that he laid a foundation in the church. The apostles laid the foundation of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Jesus Christ the, and the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Word of God is all that is needed for a church to grow. That's all you need. The person work of Christ, the word of God. The written word and the living word. That's all you need for a church to grow, really. As it is empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course. Paul says, I laid that foundation. Now people are building on it. As the generations go, as teachers come and go, as the church is grown, that foundation is being built upon. Through the many generations since the first century, the church has been building on this same foundation, the same teachings of the apostles and prophets. The finished word of God. 
we have the foundation. That is why there are no apostles or prophets today, because their main function is to lay the foundation, to reveal the word of God. And so since there is no need now for a new foundation, there is no need for apostles and prophets today. So a healthy church is marked by, a, by one that uh, teaches and preaches the truth of the Bible exclusively. That's what makes a healthy church. As the Bible is taught and preached with Christ as the center of it all, we build upon the foundation. Did you know that that's what we're doing here? We Two are building upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's what we do. Week to week, month to month, year to year. That's what we're doing. We don't go back and tear out a section of the foundation. We don't tear out a section of scripture. We don't go back and add another's foundation on top of it or to the side. We don't add to scripture. What we have is enough. It is not only enough, it is perfect. It is complete. And so we simply build upon it. That's what gives the church stability, is the foundation. If we start building upon other foundations, other teachings that is not the word of God, then the structure that you build on that foundation the church that you build on that foundation is as weak as the teaching it's built on. And that's why we see churches crumble. It's because they're not built on the word of God. They are built on fads, on culture, on opinions, on personalities. Not God in his word. But here we are committed to the word of God. That's why our name is Redeemer Bible Church. That's what we're about. And so you can find stability here, Christian. You can be confident that we take great pains to only say what God says. And to make it clear when we give our wisdom or our opinion. Now, Paul says that this foundation has Jesus Christ as its cornerstone. He says, verse 20 again, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now we have this foundation, the word of God, and the cornerstone of that foundation is Jesus Christ himself. What does that mean? Well, in ancient times, the cornerstone was the huge rock that provided stability for the whole structure. It was the reference point for all the other walls in the building. The cornerstone was a stone that was in the corner. It was the first stone to be laid. And so they would go to the quarry, find a stone that was strong enough, sturdy enough, straight enough, where they could build a whole structure based on the angles of that stone. If any angle was off in that stone, 
the whole structure was tilted or slanted. The walls would not be straight. The cornerstone was a reference point for all other walls in the building. All other stones leaned against that stone. They were all fitted. They were cut to match the angle and direction of that one stone. That one stone and the effects and the angle of that stone permeated through every stone in the rest of the the building. John MacArthur says that the cornerstone was a major structural part of ancient buildings. It had to be strong enough to support what was built on it, and it had to be precisely laid because every other part of the structure was oriented to it. The cornerstone was a support, the orienter, and the unifier of the entire building. If the cornerstone was imperfectly cut or placed, the symmetry and stability of the entire building would be adversely affected. This is what Jesus Christ is to God's kingdom, God's family, God's building. Jesus Christ is the support, the orienter, and the unifier of the church of Christ. It's stunning because in Psalm 118.22 it says that Jesus Christ, being this stone, is the stone which the builders rejected. That rejected stone became the chief cornerstone in God's structure, the church. Jesus Christ is the one that the world rejects, isn't he? He's the one that, after close scrutiny, after evaluation, the world looks at him and says, I, he is not worthy of me building my life on. He's not worthy of having in, any influence in my life. That's what the world says. He is the stone which the builders rejected. Yet it is this stone that God chose. It is his son, Jesus Christ, that God chose to be the cornerstone, the main reference point, the central figure in the church, in the family of God. In fact, in Isaiah 28, 16, The Lord God says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed. That's Jesus Christ. In the church, Jesus Christ is a reference point for every ministry, every event, and every decision. What does that look like? Well, the leaders are to be marked by Christ's likeness. Every ministry must declare the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Our songs must be saturated with the gospel and the glory of Christ. Our physical care 
and helps to one another. Display the love and the care of Jesus Christ. Even our cleaning and our behind-the-scenes kinds of ministries show the humility and the service of Jesus Christ. You see, with Christ as the cornerstone of our foundation, we can be sure that we are going the right direction. The foundation and the building, that is, the Word of God and the family of God, are both solid because it has Christ as the cornerstone. The Word of God is immovable, steadfast, trustworthy, because it all points to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as we build upon that solid foundation, our church is given that same kind of stability and endurance. If we center on Christ, if we make Him the main attraction, then nothing can thwart Christ building his kingdom, even though the gates of hell might try and take it down. Now, this is the church, but what about your life? Jesus Christ must be the reference point for every part of your life, Christian. Christ must be central. What does this look like? Simple things. Listen to songs and sermons about your Lord and Savior. Read books that explain Him well to you. Be around other people who will point you to Him. And give you a model of what it looks like to live like him. That's what it looks like for him to be central in your life. Christ must be foundational. He must be the cornerstone of your life. What does that mean? All of your decisions. The direction of your life, the trajectory, your plans for the future must come from Him as the reference point. So as you make decisions and make plans of where to go, who to be with, how to spend your money, how to plan for the future, your long-term goals must be governed by Jesus Christ. That is, it must be with the goal that He is exalted. And if you come across a fork in the road where one way you can make much of Christ, but then the other way it's, it's about you and your preferences and what you want, go the way of Christ. Make your decision based on Him, Christian. And you won't be disappointed. In fact, you will be steadfast, immovable. You will have stability. If you make less of yourself and much of Christ, 
there will be greater and greater stability in your life. Pick jobs that free you to serve and worship Christ along with other believers. You might say, well, then I'll have less financial stability, but you'll have spiritual stability. Which is more important? Christ says, what good is it of man, for a man if, if he gains the whole world of riches but forfeits his soul? Which is more important? And as you work at your job, work hard, because you, there you are serving Christ. He is the reference point even of your job. He gave it to you. He gives you strength to do it. And you're working for Him. You're actually worshiping the Son of God as you work. You work as unto Christ. Through your boss. To Christ. As you obey your employer, you're obeying Christ behind them. Not only this, but... Live holy lives because of the power of Christ to set you free from sin. That's what it looks like to have Christ as a cornerstone of your life. What he's done to me as a Christian, how he has set me free from the clutches of sin, that is going to show in my life. He gave me new life. He gave me a new heart. He reoriented my desires and my 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 uh, cravings to Him. He is my desire. I crave Him. I seek to make much of Him. Christ says, if you love me, you'll obey me. He says, prove it. You say you love the Lord, prove it. Obey Him. And if, you're marked as, if your life is marked by disobedience, you don't love Him. It's lip service, friend. But yet he's waiting for you with open arms. He's waiting for you and commanding you, kiss the sun. Kiss me while there's still time. Love me while there's still time. Before it's too late. With Christ as your cornerstone, with him as your reference point, you live holy lives because of the power of Christ to set you free from sin. And husbands... You treat your wife with love and tenderness, giving your life for them. Why? Because Christ, your cornerstone, did that for you. See how if you line up with him, you're living the way that you should be. What did he do for me? What did he do for you? Man, husband, father, did he love you? Was his love marked by tenderness? Was his love for you marked by sacrificial giving of yourself? Was, your, was his love for you marked by loving you to the end? Then love your wives that way. Love them to the end. Sacrifice something of yourself for their good. Give up something so that you can say yes to your wife and to your children.
Wives, you love your husbands and your children the way that Christ loves you. If he's your cornerstone and you line yourself up with him, then as you are a wife or a mother, you remember how Christ loves you and how he's patient. Isn't he patient? Isn't he long-suffering? Then, then be patient and long-suffering with your children. Does he endure with you in your sin, in your negligence of him, how you put other things before him? Does he endure your waywardness at times? Then women, wives, love with that same kind of endurance. Love through thick and thin. Serve your husbands. Love them. Submit to them, even though they don't deserve it. Because I'll tell you what, it's going to be few and far between those times when we deserve you to follow our lead. And yet, that's what Christ calls you to. is to loving, sacrificing submission to your husbands. The way that you respect the Lord, you respect your husband. Not letting him lead you into sin, not letting him mistreat you and abuse you. That's not what Christ does. But nonetheless, putting his interest first and finding harmony in the way that God has made you, male and female. Now, if you build your life on the word of God, Christian, if you build your whole life on the word of God, basing every decision, every attitude, every desire, every word on the revealed truth of the word of God, and it has Christ as the cornerstone, then, Christian, you have a solid foundation for your life. You do. And I'll tell you, you will not be like those that are tossed back and forth by every new trend and every new teaching. Your life will have stability. You won't be completely overcome by the storms and the waves of trial and heartache. Because there are storms and waves, aren't there? The world doesn't have a monopoly on trials, disappointments, and heartaches, do they? We get cancer too. We get COVID too. We get lousy wives and lousy husbands and lousy children too. And lousy parents. We lose our jobs too. We don't know what tomorrow brings too. But Christian, if you have Christ as your cornerstone, and if you build your life on the Word of God, in the household of God, then these storms and waves of trials and heartaches will not overcome you. It'll be difficult, but you won't be overcome. And you will be stable in the sea of confusion. So what? So find stability here. 
in the household of God as we build upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as our cornerstone. Find stability here. Become a member. Love your fellow Christian. Appreciate what we have here. The treasure of the local church. And renew your commitment to the saints. Christian, I I desire that you would be renewed. And that you would grow in your appreciation and your commitment to the church. But it's not about Redeemer Bible Church. I want to be clear about that. This isn't self-serving. This is about you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says, if you love me, you'll love my people too. Because I love them. Look what I did for them. I died for them. And so if you love me, die for them too. Let's pray. Stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, we... We love you. And we know that we only love you because you first loved us and gave your son to be a propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the wrath. He soothed your anger, God. The anger that you had towards us, that enmity, that hostility that you had towards us and we towards you is soothed, is calmed, is quieted, is quenched by the blood of Christ. And now, Lord, we stand as one family, the household of God, loving each other as we love you. And we pray, Lord, for greater unity, for greater devotion to you, for greater usefulness, Lord, We pray, Lord, for greater love, both for you and each other. That as we cherish you, we would cherish one another. Lord, be with us as we take your supper, Lord Jesus. As we remember you, we pray that we would indeed remember you. In vivid detail, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11. This is the Lord's Supper and solemn time. Again, the elements are in the back table. If you plan on taking them, you can get them now. The Lord's Supper is for believers in Christ as we remember the Lord and all that He has done for us. It's a celebration. It's a supper. We enjoy this time. But it's a memorial too. Because we remember, we remember somebody's death. As we remember the death of Christ in our place on the cross. So there's a, there's a rejoicing and a sobriety to this as well. We don't take it flippantly. 
We need to honor this time. And so just by way of reminder, parents, if your children have professed a faith in Christ, we rejoice with you. We would advise you to withhold the supper from them until they get baptized, which is the central and first mark of being a believer in Christ and a follower of him. But we leave that between you and God. We honor your authority in your household. You know your children best. First Corinthians 11, 23, I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So that's what we want to do. We, We want you to take this with us. And so we want you to be right with the Lord first. So let's take a moment and pray to the Lord on your own. And get right with him this morning. Oh, Lord, if you would count our sins against you, none of us could stand in your courtroom. We'd all be judged in our sin. But, Lord, there is freedom from guilt in the blood of your Son. He died in our place. He suffered the judgment in our place. And so now we can stand in your courtroom, as it were, righteous, acceptable in your sight guiltless. We thank you. We don't deserve it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read it again, and then we'll take it. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take it.
Let's pray one more time. Oh God, how freeing it is to be washed, to be clean in your sight. We can come to your throne of grace. And even as we remember all our failings and our, and, and our shortcomings this week, all the times where we didn't make Christ our cornerstone, our direction of life, Lord, there is much forgiveness to be had in him. Lord, you love us the same. We're your children. You love us dearly. We're part of your family. So, Lord, we cherish you. Lord Jesus, we remember you today. May we not forget you so quickly this week. May you be at the forefront of our minds and our hearts as we leave this place. May you be on the tip of our tongues, even. We pray. Amen. Let's sing.
Amen. Amen. If you desire to become a member of this church or be baptized to display your devotion, following of Christ, we have information at the back table. Uh, You can fill it out and just drop it in the offering box. We would welcome you uh, if that's your desire. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, you're so precious. You're so kind that you would give us a home, that you would grant stability, Lord, to our lives, to our very souls. There's a foundation in our soul, Lord, at the deepest part of our being. Christ is there, and we will not be moved. Lord Jesus, you invited us to your table this morning. And you've set a feast before us. We have ate and drank of you. And we are full and we are satisfied. Thank you. Thank you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 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 You're dismissed.